I'm Stephen James, and welcome to Creatively Speaking, an hour-long podcast where I sit down with artists, musicians, communicators, and all types of creatives in between. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Creatively Speaking. I'm Stephen James, and of course, sitting next to me Mm -hmm. is, I mean, by contractual agreement, I must refer to him as... Mr. Entertainment, Harry Tujani. That's right. The executive, executive producer of Capital Wrestling. I forgot about that. Yeah. And also the the... owner. How many titles have you had? A lot. That's the beauty. Mr. Entertainment, the owner. Oh, my God. Uh, Chief operating officer. Chief operating officer. I think you make all the merch now. Head of merch. Head I collect merch. all the checks for the merch. Yeah, I don't know I, if I'm, I'm in charge. Yeah, I'm still waiting for a little, bit, um, a little bit of money off of that. Yeah, I don't know how it happened. It's little by little. <laughs> little by expect. little. I was supposed to call one match on the first show, and now I'm the owner of Capital Wrestling. Yeah. So that's how that works. That's how that works. It's most stories. So that's one of the lessons I've learned. In any anything in uh, show business and wrestling and comedy seems to be the same thing. Like, listen, you're just gonna be here for one thing. And it's, and it's never temporary, that one thing. and it's never that one thing or temporary. So if you ever get a thing of like thinking like ah, they just want me to come in for one thing, just go, just go, yeah. Because you'd be surprised how many things end up just by osmosis. Just you're there. Once you're there, you're there. I was supposed to call one match for the first show, one match for the first yeah. show, and that's it. And we've called matches, and we'll get into the the wrestling yes. portion of it in a little bit. But Which is how we you know, know each other? You yeah. start. Well, you know, we've met. Before that, actually, yes, true. We met through you know an old radio show and a friend of ours, and I knew you from where you where I first knew about you was from the Ron and Fez show. Oh, okay. I was a fan of the, oh, Ron, the Ron and, and Fez, Fez show, show. so yeah. that's where I sort of knew who you were. But then didn't when I met you, it was like, oh, you know, that's yeah, that was a while. That was, that was a long time ago. Yeah. My last Ron and Fez show was two thousand five. When did you so realize that comedy was the path for you? Because you started in stand-up, what, at 18, yeah. if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, I was As still in career. high school when that's, I started. That's crazy. Yeah, the last year of high school I started, like a couple months before. Um, I don't know when I, I – I always loved it. I wanted to do it since I was 14. That's when I realized I wanted to do it. I didn't do it till I was 18. I spent about four years, four years writing before I even stepped foot on stage. Um, probably due to stage fright, shyness. Not, also, I was 14. There really wasn't – I don't know where I was going to do the comedy. <laughs> but uh, eventually, I just kind of kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, I think I was doing other creative stuff in high school at the time, you know, working for the uh, – I was lucky to have TV. I went to two different high schools. Both of them had TV programs, like uh, – oh. I mean programs by, you know, uh, classes. The morning announcements. Morning announcements. One of them was morning announcements. One of them we did – we actually shot a show once a month that aired on public access or nice. something. But, you know, you'd learn how to shoot stuff, and they kind of gave you carte blanche and – Everybody else would do like the uh, standard, uh, all right, I guess I'm going to do a news piece. Uh, what do you guys think about the lunch in the cafeteria? It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. And, well, I, I think it's good and I think it's okay, but I don't like it. Pers- you know, all that, you know, you interview five students, they, they do that. And it was, so they kind of, I realized early, they let you do anything you want if you want it. Like, no one's paying attention. No one's paying attention. So I would do weird little pieces like fake, ask, I would ask, I would do daily show style pieces about like, the election coming like at the time it was the 2000 election so gore and bush. gore and bush and so i would interview students asking them about that but it would be very uh tongue-in-cheek and they were fine with it they were like oh this is funny as long and i made sure that it was clearly you know i tried out for the basketball team <laughs> which clearly you 325 pounds you weren't going to no not at all but that. you know i uh you know, I'd film the pieces, and they, they let me air them. And that's what I was doing comedy-wise, because I knew I wanted to do comedy. When did you know? When uh, was the moment when you I don't like, remember how old is... I was, but uh, I was watching Saturday Night Live, like I always did on Comedy Central. I, was at, I remember where I was. I was at my uncle's house. They were just having dinner or whatever, and when they're done eating, they bullshit. You know, grown-ups bullshit, so you're like, I'm out of here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to my uncle's room and watch TV. And uh, the sketch that did it was a sketch uh, called The Lost Ending to It's a Wonderful Life. And it was um, basically what it was. It was an ending that they had cut out that they didn't air. So the cast was, you know, Phil Hartman, uh, Dana Carvey plays Jimmy Stewart and all that. And, and the way the sketch works is they do the ending verbatim for about 30 seconds. And then just as the credits would roll, as you've seen it in the movie, Phil Hartman comes in and he goes, I remembered what I did with the money. Uh, I spoke to Clarence at the bank. He said, old man Potter deposited exactly $8,000. It was him. <laughs> and, you know, Dana Carvey goes, well, well, what are we waiting for, everybody? Let's go get him. And then as a mob, 
They go to old man Potter's house, John Lovitz, and just proceed to beat the it fuck out of him. Frankenstein. Yeah, they yeah. just beat him to death, and that's how the movie ends. <laughs> you know, and they start harked out, Carol, as they're beating him to death. And I, I, it was so funny, but I had seen other funny sketches, but I completely understood what they were doing. I thought it was genius. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that now. And that's when I wanted to do comedy. Did you, did you remember your first bit or the, the first thing that you ever wrote that you were proud of? Oh, that I was proud of? Well, as a kid, you know Oof. sometimes um, – I'm not, I'm not saying now that you would still be proud of, but Oh, but then, but then? Then that you were like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of getting I mean, this thing. I would have to say the first thing I was actually proud of was when I actually stepped on stage and, and did it. No, I mean I was proud of like uh, the comedic videos I shot actually. A lot of those things in, in, in school because they, I, that was the first time I'd ever get a reaction from somebody. I had a ton of ideas that I would write down and record into an audio recorder. And when I look back on them, they're terrible, obviously. Yeah. They, they should be terrible. I was 14. Yeah. But uh, when I would do those pieces in high school, like one time I um, – anytime someone gave me a little bit of creativity to run with it, I'd run with it. So like uh, my world history professor – in high school, as a freshman in high school, his name was Mr. Madden, Gerald Madden, in uh, South Plantation High School in Florida. And he wanted you to write these essays. He called them updates. And I remember that I had titled one something funny or whatever. It was just a sarcastic title, like a thing. And he laughed and he wrote like, ha ha, on the top of it. Oh, he likes this. So I would write them humorously from that point on. To try Whatever the assignment was. Like, what is the history of... Uh, you know, find a news article and tell me the significance of it socially. And then I would write a thing about, you know, Burger King recalling meat or something for E. coli or school shutting down. And I would Put it in do I would manner. do my best Dennis Miller impression verbally okay. and do a rant, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, what's the deal with the price of movie popcorn nowadays, huh? <laughs> but, you know, a more important subject, you know, it's like, you know, it's getting to the point here. Was he, was he your first... Would you consider him your first audience where you had that instant yeah. feedback? He was the first one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where somebody – where it wasn't a friend or something laughing and, you know, you'd all laugh. But he was the first he like – He wasn't obligated to laugh. He wasn't obligated to laugh at all. Yeah. And so he was the first one and I would write those pieces. But then I knew I had already – I already knew I wanted to do comedy. That was just an opportunity. And then another thing I would do would – like I remember we uh, – for biology – this is like we're on the tail end of this because you can't do this anymore. We're dissecting frogs, yeah. like actual frog. You they would you can't do never that even attempt to yeah. do that now. Um, you got to make sure that the plastic frog that you're you know oh they do it on computer now. You just do on a seriously. I remember <laughs> VR seeing VR goggles. Yeah, uh, they just here's what it would look like if you dissected a frog, <laughs> which is not the same thing. But at the same time, also like kind of the same thing. But no, not. it's not the same yeah. thing. But also, um, not everyone needs to dissect a frog. No. If you want to go into biology and into medicine, you should dissect a frog. But Maybe not everyone needs to. Yeah, if you're an to, accountant, why do you need to know? What right, this, or if you want to be a plumber, there's no reason you should be. <laughs> we should, you know, fucking with frog corpses. <laughs> but we dissected a pig too, okay. and so they said, "All right, you have to do a presentation on what you learned. Just, you know, you can do anything you want." They're like, uh, "One time, somebody did a, you know, they documented via photo. Somebody did a slideshow. Somebody did video." And I was like, "Oh, we could do video." Okay. So I got a, a camcorder from the TV production thing. And I did all the – I always made sure I got the assignment done. So all you have to do is make sure you – you know, I knew enough to know, like, to bullshit it. Like, all right. To hit that, the bullet points. The that hypothesis is this. Yeah. But at the end of the video, I did a uh, in memoriam to the uh, – <laughs> I forgot we named the pig. But I played uh, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven uh -huh. underneath footage of the dissect stills of the dissected pig with the, you know, the IRP, you know. That is amazing. 1999 to 2000, you yeah. know. Would you know my name <laughs> if I saw you in heaven? And, I mean, at least in your case, yeah. your school or your teachers were – they found it humorous and they kind Most of, of the time. let you – But – oh, time? absolutely. Okay. After Mr. Madden was freshman year, sophomore year, I got a substitute uh, – I got a social studies teacher who did not care. Didn't appreciate And I figured that out real quick. I was like, okay – it's not going to work twice. Did she just – he or she just write boo? Not boo. No, but just nope, no, not, not. So I forget what she wrote down, but it became real apparent that her sense of humor was not yeah. the same. Like, oh, all right, well, this sucks now. <laughs> she uh, must drive a Dodge Dart. Yeah, that was uh, – yeah, she was – you know, and in hindsight, she was just a young teacher trying to do – survive 
in she a public she was school. Like probably but... Michelle Pfeiffer in freaking uh, Dangerous Minds. Maybe a little bit. Well, the first school I went to was South Plantation High School, which was a uh, Florida's not known for their uh, spending a lot of money on education. So it's like thirty-five kids to a class. There's not a lot of schools, so they would bus kids from other counties. So you're busing kids in. It's a rich. It's a rich neighborhood for that area, but we made all our money up here, and my dad wanted to move down there. So our money up here, where we'd be lower, lower middle class, up there we were like upper middle class in a nice area. So you wearing like nice sneakers, and yeah. I mean, not necessarily like you know, but you could get a nice house. It's a nice area, is what I'm saying. Yeah. The point: we weren't rich. But because we had our money from up here, working up here, we the had exchange rate. The, the exchange rate is the cost. Yeah, so we could afford a really nice house, nice neighborhood. But schooling-wise, they had to bus kids in from the, the ghetto, basically. So it was the combination of the worst of both worlds. You had spoiled, uh, spoiled little bitch kids, and then like you know, like Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero level, like. Yeah. And then on the other hand, it was some of the most dangerous kids I mean, they got to sell their Adderall to somebody. I guess. But it was the worst combination of both. I hated it down there. But anyway. <laughs> but that I don't know why I went on that tirade. I, I don't know. You were talking. You were, <laughs> yeah. I was you were talking bitching about, about high school. Bitching about high school. Oh, no. It was just, teachers. The yeah. teacher. She was just trying to survive, probably, like, survive. deal with all that. Now, when you but made... she didn't care for my humor. She didn't have time for me. She's like, that. She, was, she just didn't have, you know. Mr. Madden was in the military. Like, he had lived a life. Yeah. So to him, he's like, yeah, I don't care. Whatever. Do you what you got to do is i've stabbed a nazi skull right yeah this is anything to me that's not by the book all right relax (laughs) copper uh so she obviously wouldn't be in your stand-up crowd for your first show so tell us about your first show was there or your first year i should say in stand-up comedy is there any time was there anyone who took you under your uh, under their wing or were you big leagued how long before by comedian kid yeah uh, well, all right. So the first thing I did was May 20, what was it? May 21st, 2001. It's the first time I ever did stand up comedy. So I didn't know any better. I signed up for this thing called a bringer show. And the bringer show is basically pay to play. You bring four people, you get on a stage. Got it. Okay. Right. Much like and the so whiskey is. Anybody can the, do it. Yeah, right. For bands. Right. The yeah. same thing. You know, you pay, you know, whatever you pay to play. And you can bring anybody, you know, whatever. They don't care how bad you are. I mean, you know, as long as you bring people, you go. Um, so I had all these friends from high school, like, you should do stand up, you should do stand up. And I'm itching, like, I want to do stand up. And finally, I was like, all right, let me do it. And they all came, they all came, like, I, I would have four or five at a time come different shows. Um, I killed the first show I ever did because I'd been writing for four years. So, so you had all that material that you'd worked through. Well, I, but more importantly, I had, I, all I had to do was get five minutes, right? But it, but it takes you even more than four years to get five minutes. If you really think, if you really go out there, I've seen, you know, people doing open mics and it's terrible. It's a long process. So luckily for me in that four year span, I was able to flush out all the shitty material and then get five minutes of decent material. It wouldn't be material that I would kill with now. Yeah, because you're a different comedian. Right. But for, for the first time and even for, you know, a club for five minutes, I did really well because it was my best of. And uh, so that was a really good experience. Uh, and the second I did it, I wanted to get up and do it again. I was like hooked. I'm like, I cannot wait to do this again. Um, the problem was at some point you go, okay. Uh, and this is the only time I really – and I, I get got in the show business world a lot. But so, you know, the owner of the club, they're, they're, they're making their money. Some clubs make their money on that during the week especially, if it, especially shittier clubs. Yeah, because um, you brought them clients. You bring them yeah. – yeah, so – and then you get the call, hey, you know what? We're doing a network showcase. On, do you want to do the network showcase mm. on July 21st? Hey, do you want to do the, uh, do you want to do the college booker showcase on uh, you know, uh, June 7th? Like, like, sign me up for all of them. And then you realize like little by little, like, oh, there's no networking here. There's nobody from any promotion. They're just, you know, They're just sucking you in. Yeah. Thing, yeah. And then I'd also watch them bring in audience and bring them regular audience that they had. They had two rooms. I remember this was the New York Comedy Club, which was at the time was a real shithole. I never thought. Now it's uh, under new ownership and the people there are really great. It's become one of the better clubs in New York to work. But at the time, I didn't know any, but I was getting a lot of stage time there. First place I ever did, Boston Comedy Club. Ed, Ed Helms was the host of the show, the, Brook, uh, the Bringer Show. But I then moved on to kind of the New York Comedy Club was where I did a lot more of the Bringer Shows because they had more of them. And uh, it was a shithole, but I would realize that they, during the summer, for some reason, 2001, it was the end of that comedy boom. 
It was still yeah, like the lull came down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were getting a lot of tourists and stuff. And w- what I saw them doing was they'd fill up the main room for the regular show, and then just start pushing people into the bringer show. And even as a kid, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm watching that. the bringer show, and most of it sucks. Yeah, and it should suck. It's young people it's who have ground. no idea what they're doing. I mean, no. Tra- I mean, training ground. At least somebody's provided. There's some instructor there. <laughs> trying to tell you something or anything all this is is all right did you bring in three people four people good all right here's your five minutes here's when you go up uh, and then that's it and it could be anything from just people nervous and muttering into the microphone and or uh racial tirades you know (laughs) absolutely anything and, and you've got to follow or go on. You've got to follow that. But even that, I, I would see them push the regular overflow because they'd fill in the other room of these people paying regular price and they'd push them in. I'm like, I realized it was a con. Yeah. And I was like, all right. So at some point, I got to stop doing this. This is not going to get me ahead because I thought, oh, the booker likes me. You know, I, I was very delusional, somewhat delusional because I thought all that mattered was talent. Mm-hmm. And what you realize in showbiz and any business, really, but especially showbiz. Talent has very little to do with it. There are plenty of talented people sitting at home. Plenty right of talented people sitting anything. at home. Plenty of talentless people working. Yeah. That doesn't mean it shouldn't mean anything. It means something. It has to mean something to you. I can't go out there and suck ass because I give a shit about it. Exactly. I care. There has if to I be a suck. reason why you're still getting up. Yeah. I, now listen. I've watched people get up there, ten years at a clip, going, "I don't know how you get up there because you got to listen to you." Yeah, you, you have to be you know, comfortable looking at yourself in no, the mirror when you come home. Nobody listens to my comedy more than I do. So if I don't like if I'm I don't know how I don't know how mentally people can do it, to be honest. Uh, I almost it's almost courageous to get up there and bomb well, time after time. I'm like, Jess, how can you do it? If I if, if I have three or four jokes that don't work in my set, I'm like, All right, we better fix that up for next time. Yes, yeah, we, we can't have that. What do you what was your worst bomb do you remember a time where it was just you bombed so bad you just thought about maybe getting out of comedy or just Mm, this is rough no you know what it's weird i caught on very early because i would you know i would bounce from place to place and you i don't know if you can figure it out like hey i killed in this one room with this i had a good i had a, a good material to start with from my end so my batting average was pretty good. You, as, as, a com, as a comedian, it's, it's very hard. I, people don't know this, but some, a lot of it has to do with the audience as well. You know, there are nights, even really great comedians will do the same bits. Generally, you do the same bits over and over again. And some nights, every once in a while, it doesn't kill. The audience is off. The audience is no good. It doesn't work. Sometimes it's you. Sometimes you could be doing great, you know, but the audience is no good. And you learn that it's a batting average, right? Uh, for me... Uh, I knew that you go by the batting average. So it never got to me terribly that I bombed so hard I wanted to quit. I mean, if, no matter who you are, especially you starting out, there's going to be nights you get no laughs at all. And sometimes it's not you at all. Like, sometimes the, the audience is just not willing Sometimes the laugh. audience is not willing. Sometimes the audience has been burned by the four or five shitty comics that went on before you. Got it. And they're looking at you like, make me laugh, chuckles. It's even yeah. that, or they're looking at it because you almost feel bad for them. <laughs> and now I'll, you know, I don't do those shows as much now because you try to pick and choose what shows. You know, when you start out, you do any show that they have. You know, whatever it is, you're like, oh, drive out to Long Island, great. Here's the first road gig I ever did. Here's one about bombing that wasn't had nothing to do with me. The first road gig I ever did was out to Long Island, which is not that far, but it's a three-hour drive all the way. They rented some pizzeria or some some bar had some idea to do. We get there, you know, driving two hours. Some really good comedians, uh, and we get there and we all carpool. And uh, a guy pulls up in like a white Cadillac, and he's blaring like you know house music or whatever, like Jersey Shore before it was Jersey Shore. Got it. And he gets out his Cadillac. You know, you can smell the cologne from across the street. But he gets out. He goes, uh, "What's going on here tonight?" <laughs> and we go, "Oh, it's a stand-up comedy show." And he goes, oh, yeah, really? He nodded his head, shook his head. Are, we, are you sure it wasn't John Travolta? I mean, that's my, it, his, <laughs> if not him, one of his cousins. Uh, uh, just went, yeah, really? Oh. He nodded his head and then immediately got back in the Cadillac and pulled away from the bar. <laughs> and Tires screeching. Just should have been a sign to me like, oh, this is not. <laughs> this is and we well. get up there and the sound system, we're just talking to the DJ sound system. Like every mistake that a bar makes, like no one takes into consideration all the nuance. TV's still on, showing sports. Oh, 
no good. The sound system doesn't reach everybody. You just, know, just a corner, just of the a room. corner of it. So the even the people who wanted to hear it can't hear it. Oh, so now no. they just start. They get bored. They start chatting. So now you're doing material while some well the like there's 500 people in this big. It was like a big bar. Maybe it was like 400 people, something like that. And 300 of them can't hear you. Even and it, even if they wanted to hear you, they yeah. can't hear. You. So they just like oh fuck this. They and start chatting with each, each other. other. So you're talking. And then yeah. so that you're bombing. That's that's bad. Uh, the worst is, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I just the audience didn't laugh, other comedians didn't laugh. It was just a dead, dead show. So that happened so many times that there isn't one that stands out to me as being the most horrific. That's not when you want to when you want to quit. When you want to quit, or you know, you're like, should I even be doing this? Is more like you can't get up even on the stage, and you're watching. One time I got fired because the guy goes, "Oh, you're funny, but you're just not." getting people into the club you know it was my yeah, job to hand out yeah. flyers like i was like oh that was another sobering one i got fired like oh you're super funny but i'm gonna have to fire you and it's like oh wow even though yeah. i i thought my whole thing was I thought it was just talent to be funny but yeah. that guy doesn't care that guy is just running some other he's running show he's you know it's like he's in charge he's been doing it two years you've been doing it one year two years he, he doesn't know shit either in hindsight but it's like when you're a kid, you know, the sophomore is older than the freshman. So you just look up to the sophomore like they know anything. Yeah, for no reason other than that they've been They've doing just it been there longer, longer right. Now, are there any people who took you under your wing? Any comedians that looked out for you in the early days? Very few, but there were a couple. Mark Anthony Ramirez was was good to me, which is ironic because he was an asshole when I met him. And <laughs> and uh, when he was still, and he admits it. He goes, yeah, I was, sounds about right. Like, he'll let you know, like, yeah, I was fucked up. And it turned out to be one of the sweeter nicer guys he he you know he he didn't he's still doing comedy but he, he didn't ha- hit 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 it big where he could help me really help me out like take yeah. me on the road and stuff but he would put me on shows anything that he was involved with he would think to include me in it uh as a very good friend of mine joseph rocha who was doing the show longer than i had been doing it and uh he passed away recently and, and a very sweet dude who um when i first met him like uh, that's the, the things you like you know he, we were just on the same show together some bar show and um, and he goes, oh, you're funny, man. We got to hang out because you're funny. Just purely based on that, he started a friendship because he just liked funny and interesting and unique people. Um, he would recommend me whatever rooms he had, you know, uh, and, and a little, again, all, all the people who love me don't have much power, though. That's the irony. Everybody <laughs> I, you know, hoping would look out for me, you know. And then uh, the other one who looked out for me a lot was um, Dante Nero. Okay, who, yeah. yeah, who is now who I now do a podcast with, Man uh, School, Man School 202. 202, and he would look at he looks out for me and tries to get me on. But again, he's one he's still trying to get his own thing. That's the other thing in show business is a lot of the times, you know, you want somebody to look out for you, but you're also waiting to be looked out there. For yeah, he's yeah. waiting. You know, he's trying to get his big break, so he's not always thinking about me, and that's fair. You know, it's not his responsibility, and it's also it isn't anybody's responsibility to look out for you. If that happens, that's nice. Yeah. But it's not anybody, you know, people help you along the way when they can. And, you know, you make friendships and people put you on the shows and stuff. But as far as mentoring, and no one mentored me as far as the writing part. That I just learned on my own. When you first started doing stand-up yeah. and you had, uh, you had your first club gig, what did your parents think about you getting into comedy when they saw you for the first time? Were they supportive of this decision? Because stand-up comedy has the stigma what of What the fuck do you think, Steve? <laughs> Do you think my parents were supportive? Was I'm it, assuming it? not. They were horrific. Here's how. Here's how. But by by the point I had started doing stand up, I already knew that I didn't give a shit what my parents <laughs> thought. Fair. At 18, yeah, senior year of high school, I was like, I didn't bother to tell them. The only reason they found out, and I would have gone on forever not telling them, um, because I knew what the reaction was going to be. And, and you know, it's somewhat it's somewhat warranted to some degree because. It's a stupid decision. Let's be honest. When you think about it in, in the rationale of what is appropriate, my parents, who are both immigrants from two different cultures, are, they're going to go, hey, you know, we didn't um, come to this country uh, on a boat. They didn't come on a boat, on a plane, but you know, everybody yeah, wants yeah. to pretend they came on a boat. Uh, on a, on uh, a raft. We didn't a come here on a storm. We didn't come here in the uh, storage compartment of a plane <laughs> fighting poverty and racism so you could be a fucking clown, huh? <laughs> So you could like, tell yuck, yuck. We wanted you to be a doctor and a lawyer to help us out, not run around telling dick jokes. So it's it's understandable. My mother eventually uh, told me that she'd rather I be a garbage man oh. than Oof. go into comedy. 
but it, and it didn't phase me. But I didn't tell them. The only reason they found out is because, again, I didn't have my own phone number. So the, the booker had to call me up at my house to find out, to confirm. I and guess they were confirming. They that's how they found out. What was their reaction when they found out? I don't even remember. It was just like, what? Well, what, what is this? Yeah. They, well, here's the thing. They didn't like it, but excuse me. There's not much they could do about it in the sense I, I didn't do any other parting. I was a straight-A student. I had gotten into NYU uh, you know, with my grades, not because we had any money. That's for damn sure. Um, <laughs> so I didn't drink. I didn't really do drugs. You know, I, wasn't, you know, I didn't party. I, I literally wouldn't now. leave the house. And if it wasn't for stand-up, the only time I started leaving the house, which was the other concern, was I went from never having left the house, not going to any – I didn't go to one party in high school. I went from that to being out every night till 1 o'clock in the morning and then coming home and having my clothes smell like smoke reek of cigarettes because yeah. people could smoke in the bars back then. That was My mother was concerned about that, but at the same time, I was coming home sober. I wasn't, so they didn't complain. They left me alone. I was going to college, so there wasn't much they could say about it. So it was kind of a stalemate. There, I, you know, I was working, so I was a writer at the Bergen Record at the time as oh, well. Nice. So they couldn't say anything about it, but they hated it. So being a child of yeah. two immigrants from different cultures, mm -hmm. how did that influence your comedy? It had to influence it in some sort of way, I, having you know, that perspective. I didn't always write about them, but what the way it influenced it was um, I learned very early on that there was no such thing as normal because I was looking for this normalcy because both my parents had this these accents and – it was two different cultures, neither of which was American. So, uh, you know, it's it's one thing to come. It's hard enough dealing with one culture. My mother's Hispanic. My father's Armenian, if I didn't make that. Uh, I don't know if I think I said that. but So it's hard enough with one weird culture that's not, you know, that you have to adjust to that. But two that are completely different. So, to, you know, the way they, everything to them was like, oh, we don't do that. Normalcy. You want to go sleep at your friend's house? You don't do that. What are you yeah, talking about? Talking. You have a house. <laughs> Why would you go somewhere uh, else? You know, I'd want to go to the movies. My dad would be like, you don't get movies. You got movies on the TV. <laughs> what do you think I pay for the TV? <laughs> you know, stuff like that that I was like, oh, okay. This is a – so it's somewhat of a rough upbringing. They were very loving. They were chaotic and crazy and not always there and not always – didn't always make the best parenting decisions uh, emotionally. But, you know, that's what it influenced more than anything, like – the sense of normalcy is I slowly, but then my parents had great bullshit detectors too because they would point out all this like all this stuff like oh I want to get the Nikes and they're like that's bullshit that's you're just spending money for nothing and eventually you see why it's so it added maybe a cynical a it added a an, cynical an, an, yeah an analytical view to things that too. I completely get from them yeah. growing up in that that culture but their sense of humor was pretty, they had a sense of humor for things that were ironic like. Uh, they they loved good stuff. They, their taste was actually pretty good in hindsight. My dad loved All in the Family. He loved Married with Children. Um, he was the one who would watch Saturday Night Live mostly for the political sketches and stuff. And uh, and so you you watch what your parents watch. You don't have your own TV for the most part. At least I don't know. Maybe now kids do, but I didn't. Yeah, same. And uh, we almost did, we barely. I don't think we had cable for a long time. So we had, it was, we had a hot box. I lived in the province. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Box. yeah. I bought one of those on my own when I, I took a job as a tel a telemarketer. Just to get enough money to buy a hot box while I was living in Florida, <laughs> so awesome. I could watch pay per views and you think it was porno, but it was really mostly wrestling, wrestling pay per views. Yeah. And well, uh, well, yeah, and then you have to because I used to watch scrambled wrestling because I, I had like a scrambled well, you could box. hear the audio clearly. The That's audio, the weird part. Yeah. So you'd listen to and the. I was like, oh, is that an elbow or is yeah. that like a foot? I'd listen sure. to the pay per views. Uh, I'd watch the scrambled porn a little bit and then listen to the uh, Dennis Miller live. <laughs> On HBO. So you meant this is the second time you mentioned Dennis Miller. It's, yeah. Uh, let's talk about influences. Dennis sure. Miller was was one. I As a stand-up, huge. Yeah. He's one of else? back in the day before he went nuts. He was uh, Dennis Miller was. Uh, I hated stand-up when I first started falling in love with comedy. Uh, I loved it when I was a little kid because I would watch Evening at the Improv or whatever was on Caroline's Comedy Hour, and that was like early '90s. That was like in the middle of the comedy boom, but a lot of it was. At first, that cartoony stuff that people did, you're like, oh, that's great. But as you get older, you're like, it's kind of yeah, lame. Yeah. That's not doing anything. I would fall in love with the sketch stuff, Kids in the Hall, SCTV, Monty Python, uh, Saturday Night Live reruns and stuff like that. And then uh, little by little, I would see people do some stuff that was really cool as stand-ups. Like Dennis Miller to me was the first guy, you, oh, you could be cool and intelligent and smart. You could write really smart jokes and still be like – Still be funny. Still kill. Yeah. 
uh, Patton Oswalt was the, the first time I saw a stand-up where I went, oh, oh, you could do something cool with that. I was watching Patton Oswalt do a set on some, I think it was called Comic Cabana. It was one of those like seven-minute set shows, like a showcase yeah. show. Um, he was a huge influence stand-up-wise. I loved it. Uh, and then I, there's an alternative comedy scene that had started because there was the mainstream you know, comedy acts, nightclub acts, and for people who are doing something a little bit different, a little bit longer form, a little bit less like going for the laughs per second, maybe something that was longer or more unique or a bizarre character or something. So there was a lot of those there, those people. Dana Gould was a huge influence. Patton Oswalt, uh, David Cross, I loved. Uh, Janine Garofalo early on was really interesting to watch her perspective. Bob Odenkirk, you know, uh, Andy Dick would do characters and things and. So I fell in love with that scene because I thought it was a little more creative, a little more unique. Ben Stiller was kind of a part of that scene as well. So that that was huge for me. Uh, you know, you'd watch things that are a little different stand-up-wise that I love. Like Eddie Izzard, I saw Dress to Kill. I remember it was a big deal in 1998, that time frame. And I was like, oh, this is even... Again, I always loved smart comedy stand-up-wise. Um, I can appreciate stupid stuff too. I think, but it has to be smartly stupid, like stupid for reading. Like Steve Martin is the master of that, and Ex- Martin Short executed correctly. Yeah, yeah, playing the arrogant idiot. I think I think I don't remember it was Martin Short who said, "There's nothing better than an arrogant, arrogant idiot." idiot. Yeah. It's the perfect quintessential character. Which I mean, that goes very well into. Oh, what I do? What, what you do in Capital that's Wrestling. heavily influenced by the arrogant idiot. Yeah. Uh, the character. I, the irony is, my name is Harry Turgenian. The problem when you play a character that is your is name. You, yeah. <laughs> as it gets labeled. Well, how did you mentioned early on yeah. that you got started? You were only supposed to do one show. Oh, now, as a color commentator, yeah. With wrestling, though, you've been a lifelong fan like yes. myself. How did you get into? Because we've been longtime broadcast partners. Yeah. In multiple companies, how did you originally get into wrestling the first time? Well, uh, um, by happenstance, Matt Ryan. Uh, who is the owner of Capital Wrestling and, uh, and manages as, as Matthew Ryan Shapiro. Uh, I think we can say that, right? I think it's, so. It's, yeah. it's not you can look redacted. it up on the internet. Yeah. I'm sure it's in one of the episodes. Um, like K-Fabe, brother. One. K-Fabe. K-Fabe. Keep, it, uh, keep the carny going. Um, <laughs> He's dead. But <laughs> in wrestling, no one's dead, brother. Uh, so he was my roommate, and he was running this wrestling company uh, and a couple different. And he always needed help. Hey, do you mind help? And I was... He asked me to videotape some of it, to do video stuff and editing stuff because I have a background in video production stuff. And so I would do that, and I was just like, you know, it was, it was fun to do it, but I was just kind of like, I always had an itch to, if, you know, I, I like broadcasting. You know, I like being on camera and stuff, and I, I do broadcasting when, with the podcast we do, Man School 202, uh, you know, uh, and I was like, you know, I'd always want to do color comedy. In the back of my head, like, that would be cool to do. But there's just never an opportunity to do it. And then I would see the, the broadcast tables a couple feet away. I, so I'd be like, hey, you know, do you mind if I try that out? I would really like to try it out. So he would let me do a dark match or two during each show. And then, like, the, fir- the dark match is the match before the main show. It's a pre a non-televised, non-televised match. Tryout match or, like, a warm-up match that, you know, gets... Just to get the crowd hot. Get the crowd hot or, or get some new talent and opportunity. And then... So he let me broadcast during that, and I, I, I did it. And the guy who... And then, of course, in a weird old broadcasting trope, the guy who was supposed to do the show, uh, the play-by-play guy, one just no-showed. Yep. Um, and I believe there might have been some uh, personal issues that led to that. I think that was that the first night we worked together. That was the first night okay. we worked together. Yeah. I, I was just there doing audio, right? And I, helping I, out, helping out. And I'd been a wrestling fan, and they were just basically like Matt was just like, "Hey, I, I need you to do this." And right? Like, uh, okay. Yeah, nobody else because no the guy notes, was no nothing. Yeah, the the guy was supposed to do the play by play. I don't know who else was supposed to do it with him, but there was someone else who was supposed to do who it. Was and, and he and, called out and too? He, I don't know what the issue was, yeah. but he wasn't there either. He wasn't was there either. Us. So two people no showed. So then, yeah, you were. <laughs> so we'd both kind of been training to try. I did one or two matches, you and I fell in love it. I fell in love yeah. with it, and I wanted just to keep doing it over. And it was a fun, creative thing to do. And to this day, it's some of the more fun creative stuff i get to do this is now our third company third company that, third, that year. third year third year third yeah, year that I mean, we're doing it together and i've i've never 
called a match with anyone else. And if I had it my Is way, that true? Yeah, if I had it my way, I never would. Because I'm having a great time. I have a great time with you. But transitioning from yeah. comedy into professional wrestling, what are some of the challenges have been? Because it's obviously different than stand up. It's a totally different animal than sketch comedy, although there are elements, but when sure. you're calling a match. Well, there's a couple things you're supposed to do. Now, one that the, the transition of bringing in the comedy was I the character I kind of chose, I admired uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan. It was my big inspiration from the color. I love the color commentary guys who are funny. To me, it's always it makes it better. Funny always makes it better. You know, and a little bit of funny. It doesn't have to be, you know, too much funny is no good. But Bobby Heenan would be just just great, like, in the middle of something. He'd find a, a, a funny thing to say about somebody. Like, what number did that in the Rumble? You know, what number did he come in at? 23. 23. 22 other guys came in before him. Yeah. Do you know how many waltz he must have gone through in the back? Like, oh, would you? And, and Gorilla and Monsoon would go, would you yeah. stop that? Yeah. And it's just a funny little quick aside, and it would, you know, add, uh, like, oh, he's a cow. Look at him. He tried to jump out of that window when someone throws somebody, you know, Shawn Michaels throws Marty Jannetty through the window. Oh, yeah. I knew he was going to do I that. I knew he was going to do that right after. No, the first thing he does, he goes, you see, I knew they were going to stay together. I knew they were going to. And then he super, super kicks him by surprise. And then he, he goes, see, I knew they were going to break up. Exactly, like, yeah. And then he throws him through a barbershop window. Shawn Michaels throws him, and Heenan shouts, you know, like, he tried to escape through the window. You see, he what a coward. <laughs> and I, those are super funny to me. So that's what I wanted to bring to the color. I think, the, you know, you can add. Um, now, again, if you do too much of that, it's no good. It, it ruins it. I've seen guys do that. Try to be silly. Try to be too cool or whatever. Takes away from Takes the match away. that's going on. So the balance that I've tried to hit is, you know, I love, in my head, it's always trying to find the funny line. Because I feel like that's what I bring that nobody else kind of brings to it is, you know, finding something funny. Uh, at the same time, we have to call it as if it's a legit contest. We have to call the moves in the ring. I have to let you do your job as the play-by-play guy and make sure I'm not stepping over you too much, overstepping my boundaries. Um, and also, sometimes the more serious the match is on the card, you know, like a main event for the title, you usually have to treat that with the ambiance of it's it's the most significant contest. This is a serious matter, so yeah, to speak. It, so it's it's a personal issue that I, needs to be talked yeah, about. Yeah, and I have to kind of dial it back a lot for that. So a lot of those I'll call straight out, and then I have to make sure I don't talk over you too much. Uh, you know, if I'm trying to get my thing in, how often do I get it in when it's the appropriate moment? When do we lay out? When do we lay out? If there's a lot going on in the ring, I have to let that happen. Sometimes i got to just let it go. If I have a line or two, I just got to let – I can't fit it in. You got to let it go. That happened two minutes ago. It's not going to work now. Don't try to create it now. Or if you try and create it again, you know it failed. It fails you, you or it's – should have known better. Yeah, right. I, you know. I've done that before and you just – or you know, we, we, we just make mistakes yeah. because we go live to tape. It's there. That's it's there, it. yeah, if for no the most catches part. It, it's going out. It's going out. I mean that's the tough challenging part is – you know, you have to think about that stuff on the fly, what you have to get in also. You have to include it in the confines of what the story is supposed to be, who the heel is supposed to be, who the face is, you know, good guys versus bad guys. Um, you know, how much is – you also don't – comedically, another thing that some people do is even though I'm being funny and trying to crap on somebody, I have to make sure that I don't make them look too bad. Look, look like or a fool. Look like a fool or, quote, unquote, bury them because – if I hit something that's legitimate and it makes them look bad, it makes the product look bad. Like, why makes, am I watching this? And it makes me look bad. But, but more so, you know, it's not good to actually bear. So I have to try to straddle the line of going, well, he's a good athlete. Like, it's like, you know, I, I can't keep going, why is this idiot in the match? And yeah. at some point, if I keep going, why is this idiot in the match? The people are going to go, gonna yeah, why is this idiot in the match? But I have to justify all that, you know. And and try to be funny at the same time and know when to do it. And, but it's a fun, creative challenge. You know. Did you find it difficult at first? What was what has been the most challenging aspect of being a color comedy? Honestly, I didn't find it difficult. I loved it. Um, the challenging parts are, you know, not talking over the other person, working with the other person. Again, I only did it with one or two other people other than you. And Which, by the way, sticks in my craw. Oh, that I got. You should only I'm, be that my, I have the senior role. No, not even, not even that. <laughs> that I have vet it's, status. You should only be me. I would only, only, if I had my way, it would only be you. But unfortunately, there was someone before you, baby. I know. I had, I, I had a history before you, baby. Partner. You know what do you want me you to do? Select. I don't have a time machine. I met <laughs> I you when I met you, girl. <laughs> uh, it's not much of a history. It would literally be like, 
it would be the equivalent of me, uh, you know, prematurely ejaculating during high school prom, and then one hand job in the uh, at a movie theater, and then, and then me really and you got married. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> me and you uh, got married in Vegas, and it's lasted. But no, yeah, I, I love working with you. To be quite honest, Thank uh, you. I'm gonna you have a lot of good. Just... Well, don't play it on the show. I'll never admit. To, I, I will. I would. What I would do is say that you doctored this audio. <laughs> doctored the audio. I would find a justification, but you, as a straight guy, have to do comedic. You have comedic timing as well. You just have to channel it through the straight guy. And every once in a while. You'll feed me or I'll feed you. I mean, literally, there's times where I I would do something. I forget what I would do. Like, stop touching me, even though you're not touching I'm not me. not touching you, yeah. And then you go, you know, you pick up on it and run with that. Yeah. Or you, tell you to stand. Like, yeah. you're, just sit down. Stand, yeah, sit, sit down. down. Yeah. I'm not standing, but, you know, if, or whatever. Fear of the mind. <laughs> right. And that's part of it. But it's also, like, the things you create where you're the butt of the joke or vice versa, you have to know your part as a straight guy. And I don't think a lot of other people would do that, but you're – it's also it makes it easier when you know what you're doing as a play-by-play guy, which you do. I was uh, I had uh, Stephanie Sotilli on the first episode oh, yeah. of the podcast. Nice, and I was talking. She's very talented. My writing partner. Yeah. Who uh, I uh, and you yeah. got something in the works. We're we're uh, running a monthly sketch show uh, called uh, Sketch Block at the Under St. Mark's Theater. It's the first uh, Wednesday of every month, 7 p.m. at Under St. Mark's. Uh, that's the theater in New York, and you can find us on Facebook, uh, Sketch Block. And we, we host a uh, group of different sketch groups and some stand-ups, a little bit of a variety show every month. I was talking and, to her about, yeah. about how she taught me a little bit, you know, uh, on how to work with scripts. And you obviously taught yeah. me a lot about comedy and you talked about the straight man stuff. Yeah. It, it's easier to work with someone who has the level and the skill that you do, who knows where you are at all times. And it's just funny. Oh, yeah, thank you. So yeah. for anybody who has that sort of part, like this is, for me, the best partnership I've ever had in terms of a professional uh, atmosphere and relationship. Oh, I've, yeah. For, so for There's for also the you, trust there back and forth because if you come up with an idea, the way we – and we didn't set out to do anything specific, but we got a great group including the director, Zane oh, Decker, absolutely. who really wants to film stuff in a unique way. So you'll come up with an idea and we may not have it down, but we'll work on it and get it together. But, you know, I always – you hope that you can – I trust that you're not coming in with something ridiculous and over the top. <laughs> I trust I that you'll listen <laughs> yeah. or we'll justify it. We'll figure it out. Yeah. But we have that same mindset also of like uh, – because a lot of people just think, oh, the silliest stuff is the funniest stuff. Which isn't always Which the is case. not always you the case. A, in fact, most times it's, it's not. not. You have yeah. to justify – you have to justify it and ground it to me to some – sometimes you can do – there's rare exceptions. There's exceptions to every rule in comedy. And you can do weird out. Monty Python has almost no grounding, except when the sketches do. The best sketches they have to me have the grounding. But every once in a while, the guy's just getting slapped with a fish. And it's funny, but you but you know from get that's not grounded. That's a different world. Yeah. But that's also the that's thing. What, what world are you playing yeah. with? Are you doing sci-fi? Are you breaking the time-space continuum? We've had to get into arguments with a couple people I know who are like, Go, well, it's alternate universe, this part of it. And we go, well, no, no, you can do that part of it, but I can't. It's not It's not alternate universe. I'm going to say that you told me it's an alternate universe. But it's not. But it's, it's not actually reality. an alternate universe. Yeah, exactly. And there's those are subtle differences, but they matter because, you know, we're not on the Millennium Falcon here. Fal- Falcon. <laughs> we're not on the Aluminum Falcon. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's a weird balance. So it's little things like that. So now being – more going from being the color commentator and being limitedly involved, you're only supposed to call one show. Yeah. You're definitely more heavily involved in capital wrestling yeah. uh, than you ever wanted or anticipated at first. How Again, that's always the, the showbiz thing. I was just there to do color commentary, and now I. How is it transitioning yeah. to a, I don't want to say a more office role, but managing sort of certain aspects that you wouldn't normally have managed before? You mean as a character or actually off-air? Actually off-air. Off-air, I was always contributing something. I think we were all, you know, it's a very inclusive office. So even though we're just, we're the play-by-play guys, we're including ideas and things. We're kind of in charge of our own, you know, segments that we shoot. And so if you write it, you're basically in charge of making sure that it happens if you want to see that happen. Um, so I've always, you know, I guess the, the more that it takes on, I have the experience to do it so it doesn't phase me. I'm happy to do it. I just want the company to, to be successful. On camera, being the owner now, the, the, the toughest thing is I'm an on, on-screen character even more so. So it's one thing to be the color commentator. You just had a table. The live audience doesn't see you. It's another thing to have to get into the ring 
and reverse a decision um, that somebody just won a championship and somehow and you're the heat magnet and now yeah I mean it was a weird it was a weird feeling getting booed legitimately because yeah. I had been booed comedically I'm used to that you know you're being sarcastic and playing a character and and literally going listen you know we can't have all this violence and nonsense and people acting uncivilly I mean that's fine for you people out here boo immediate you know that's comedic. But when, you, when people are genuinely excited to see somebody win a championship because they like that character and you come on the microphone and go, no, no, I'm reversing that decision because the referee was down, you know, just nonsense. And they are furious at you and they start booing you. And it's weird because I can't go backstage. I now have to walk <laughs> back over to the table. So they all know where I am. I don't disappear. <laughs> and you can feel their glare. Uh, they were upset. And I mean, even though it's a, it's theater, you know, for that moment, they were really bummed and angry that that character didn't win. And, you know, that's the beauty of it. If we, we did our job that night, they were furious at me. So I have to adjust to that aspect of it and be comfortable with that. Um, you know, which was, it caught me off guard a little. I was a little like, I really felt bad for the people. Like, oh, I didn't want to make people legitimately feel bad. But that's, that's my job do, because right? the more, the, be the worse I make them feel, the better they're going to feel when that character does win. Or, or in the when good, you get your or when I get my comeuppance. And that's the other thing. I also have to be careful with the things I do on camera, and who I insult on camera. Because at some point, I'm gonna, I might have to get in the ring with that person for a segment. And that was never my intention to get into the ring and be a wrestler. I have too much respect for that. But if you know all the bad guy figures, that's how it works. So at you got to get your comeuppance. Yeah. Me and you, best two out of three in the ring. Thumb, Maybe. Thumb war, Who knows? You know, hungry, hungry hippos. Who knows? Before I get to our lightning round, because we're almost uh, out of time. Yeah. If you could give advice to anyone starting, a, a young kid starting in the stand-up comedy world or any sort of creative uh, aspect, what co sort of advice okay. do you wish you had gotten? Um, well, it doesn't matter because no one's going to listen anyway. Because no everything everyone – no, I don't mean literally <laughs> – I don't, I don't mean no one's do. listening to this podcast. I mean, they're not going to heed the words I tell them because I didn't. You know, there's not much money. The odds of making it are very slim. There's not much money to be made for most, for the most part in comedy. Um, it's hard. Uh, talent doesn't always matter, and that hurts, but you got to care about it. So if you really love it, do it and know that, you know, that it might not work out and that's okay, but you have to do it because you love actually doing it. Um the other thing is there's four ways to make it. Hard work, pure luck, both or none. Like, it's somewhat random, but all you can control is what you do. Uh, I would say write things that are from the perspective that bother you, not things that are funny. Don't try to write about things or try to write things that are funny. Start from a serious point because that's what ends up being funny. The things that bug Lewis Black, for example. Lewis Black is kind of, his character is a curmudgeon. But he doesn't – it's not funny things. It's annoying things that you make fun of. So that's a, right from the point of anger first. And then you, if you're funny enough, you'll make that funny. You'll so that funny. literally something I tell people like uh, write a serious – like a, you know, two or three pages on you know, like uh, coffee shops or what you hate about them, what you don't like. Don't try to – not from a humor standpoint. Just write it seriously. And if you're funny, you'll find the humor in it. In it. It, it'll you know, it'll come to it'll you. It'll come to you or you, you'll find that, yeah, that's where humor comes from is the things that bother you because that's what humor is. It's a defense mechanism. Um, that's why gallus humor is, is the most interesting part, you know, uh, of, of life, I think. You know, finding humor in the darkest moments. I mean, you, you've done, done time in the military. You've served. <laughs> I know. It's you, an accurate <laughs> statement. You've served. Yes. But those people have to have the most gallows sense yeah. of humor because There's... if you don't, you lose your mind. So you have to find... It's a tether to reality. Right. In a place where reality can just sometimes not exist. And it's almost, not, it's almost so real that it's not real. Yeah. So when you see that much death, you could see death happen a day before, but you still have to go to work. Yeah. There's no off days in the military. Right? So sometimes you'll have those, th th that level of gallows humor of talking about things or laughing. Like, and that's the place my family always came from. You know, at funerals, some of the best times I've ever had with my family are at f other people's funerals because that's where you get to meet. But you look at the funny things, like my grandmother being buried. She had my—I don't know why my mother chose to bury her with a wig. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what my grandmother would have wanted. But we're like, is this it's the best kind of a look? Funny thing. It's a terrible yeah. wig. It's hard for you know. And those things are like, it's all right. Like 
That doesn't mean you don't care about dealing with that's it. how you're dealing yeah. with it. You're finding Absolutely. the because in a weird way, it's tragic. Like this is her most tragic moment. She'd like to look her most dignified. And we, we failed at that because this that wig one. is terrible. <laughs> but she should have bought better wigs. <laughs> All right. Granny. <laughs> Lightning round here. Uh, I asked some of these same questions to all of our guests, sure. but I tailor may uh, tailor some of them. Uh, one person, dead or alive, that you would collaborate with? Uh, if I had to pick somebody, dead or alive, uh, I mean, Phil Hartman to me was one of the greatest of all time. He could do it all. He's like the Iron Man, so he could be really silly, over the top, dignified, play straight man. He was like the Iron Man. That's Phil Hartman. If you could join any classic sitcom or sketch show as a member, who would it be? God, I always think of SNL in the uh, that eighty from eighty six to ninety two. That was to me the best cast. Um, but I might get swallowed alive. I don't think I would have been ready for that. But maybe news radio was another one. Kids in the Hall. I don't think I would have fit in. I love that stuff, but I wasn't as good at that as they were. If you could call any match in professional wrestling, what would it be? Who would it be? Uh, just uh, dead or alive, or now? Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, anything with Eddie Guerrero and his. Uh, Latino heat fun phase, like when he was a face. To me, any would have fun with that. I'd love it. I love Eddie. Yeah, yeah. Anything with Eddie, yeah, would probably be pretty good. Or and, Nature Boy Ric Flair. And if you could get rid of one group activity, what would it? be? One group activity. One group in like life. Yoga. Anything. Get rid of Jeez, one that's group a tough activity. One. A group activity that. You know what? It's not so much the group activity. I hate all group activities. Uh, I don't drink. People hang out. Let's go to the next part. Who wants food? Who wants food? And and I ru- I will rush that along like, all right, you said food? We're all agreement on food? Because I don't want to be sitting there for 45 minutes after the first person said, let's get food. I'm all about like, if we're all agreement here, right? There's no blockade. Let's no one's vetoing right the food. Let's go now. Let's go. Food. And that, that would probably be the most annoying group activity is getting food after drinking. Are we going or are we not going? Yeah, let's go. I want food. All right, let's go food. And then 45 minutes later, you're still there. Two of the – and you're looking at it. It's like an electoral, an electoral college result. You're like, all right, I got 2% of the people got their purses and their coats. We really got to move this along because I want to get to bed already. You know, it's already 3.30. If we're doing this, let's do this. All right. Well, that's all the time we have on Creatively Speaking this week. I want to thank Mr. Entertainment, Harry Tajanian, for joining us. Make sure you check out I Hate Hom- I Hate Comedy. I Hate, I hate Comedy, comedy the website. Uh, my group is The Unwanted. Uh, again, we're on the first show. Uh, first Wednesday of every month, we'll be in New York City doing sketches and stuff. Uh, Man School 202 is the podcast, sex and relationship advice for uh, both sexes, but we help out the, the uh, guys a lot because men need help. They don't know what the fuck they're doing, I, apparently. I need, I need help. Wow, that's it. We, we can talk after the show. And Capital Wrestling, available everywhere, for God's sakes. We're, we're on in the China fight now. next. Now we're in China, I think India. Uh, we're working on Guam. Uh, Space out, Outpost 297 yeah. on Mars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, Tatooine. We got. Yeah, I think we're going to be syndicated to Tatooine. So, you know, we're working on it. But you can check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Capital Wrestling, uh, on the Fight Network app. You know, we're everywhere. All right. That's it. Good luck. Good night. We're out of here.